It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. As each day brings more death and destruction to Ukraine, as the attacks become more harrowing and more innocent people are killed, world leaders like President Joe Biden have characterized the actions of Russian President Vladimir Putin as criminal. Putin is inflicting appalling, appalling devastation and horror on Ukraine bombing apartment buildings, maternity wards, hospitals. But Biden did not use the words war criminal to describe Putin until last Wednesday, talking to reporters after a White House event. Oh, I I, I think he is a war criminal. At first, the White House tried to walk back those words. But then Secretary of State Antony Blinken doubled down. Yesterday, President Biden said that, in his opinion, War crimes have been committed in Ukraine. Personally, I agree. Joining me is Kate McIntosh, Executive Director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA Law School. She's held many roles in international criminal tribunals. The term war crimes is often used colloquially. What does it mean, legally speaking? So legally, a war crime is a serious violation of the laws of war. So a serious violation of the rules that are set out in the Geneva Conventions, for example, about how war should be fought. And not every violation of those rules is a war crime. It has to be a serious violation. War criminal is a loaded label. Mm -hmm. When President Biden first said it, there was immediate backtracking by the White House. It seems like now they're coming around to that label for Vladimir Putin. How many people have actually been convicted of being a war criminal? Well, hundreds. Hundreds have been convicted of being a war criminal. I mean, as you can imagine, the rules of war you know, are violated during armed conflict. And as I said, when that's really serious, when we're talking about things like direct targeting of civilians, that is a war crime. And there have, you know, happily been quite a few prosecutions, specifically around some recent conflicts in the 1990s, for example. So um, apart from the prosecutions after World War II, the Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunals, which was really when we saw the first major wave of prosecutions for war crimes. It was in the 1990s with the tribunals that were set up to deal with the war in the former Yugoslavia and with the war and genocide in Rwanda that 
started to prosecute these international crimes. And so since then, we've actually seen hundreds of people be prosecuted for these. What has to be proven to prosecute someone like Vladimir Putin? Do you have to show that his actions were intentional? What has to be shown? You do. And I think that is the reason for the slight hesitancy in declaring that he is a war criminal before any proper investigation has taken place and just based on reports of what we've seen occurring actually on the ground. Because intentionally directing military attacks against a civilian population or civilian targets like hospitals or the art school that we saw recently or a museum, that would be a war crime. But the fact that these targets are hit during a conflict does not necessarily mean they were intentionally targeted. So it would be possible I mean, frankly, this seems unlikely in the kind of situation we're seeing reported in Ukraine. It would be possible for a legitimate target to be targeted and for there to be incidental or what we often hear of referred to as collateral damage, which actually wouldn't be a war crime as long as it wasn't completely out of whack, you know, completely disproportionate. So I think that's the hesitancy. So in order to find Vladimir Putin or anybody else guilty of a war crime, it would have to be established that they, you know, intended, directed or gave orders to the effect that something like civilians should be targeted, hospitals should be targeted. And Mariupol actually is another example because besieging a city or trying to inflict starvation on a civilian population is another war crime. So where that can be tied back to specific orders and directions, then a war crime is proved. That sounds like you would need someone on the inside who Putin is giving orders to or who overheard what Putin was saying. It could come down to that. I mean, I've worked at the Yugoslavia War Crimes Tribunal and also the Rwanda Tribunal. So I've seen these cases. And in some cases, it did rely on intercepts or insider witnesses to establish a chain of command. But the threshold is not necessarily that high. There's also legally a possibility that intention can be inferred, right? If it's so obvious from the situation that there's no way anything else, any other intention could be inferred than that that instruction had been given. So for example, example, if there is an attack on a hospital and there's nothing in the vicinity that could be a legitimate military objective, there's no allegation that the hospital was being used as some kind of military headquarters, then we can infer that there was a deliberate intention to attack that hospital. The chief prosecutor at the International Criminal Court said on February 28th that based on a preliminary assessment by his office conducted mostly in 2020, there's a reasonable basis to believe that both alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity have been committed in Ukraine. What is he referring to in 2020? Because the recent invasion just started, you know, a month ago. Right. Well, the Office of the Prosecutor has actually been carrying out what they call a preliminary examination. So the examination they carry out before opening a proper investigation since 2014. And people have been upset that that has taken so long and that it took the prosecutor until just recently to come out and make some kind of statement about that. So here we're talking about the earlier invasion of Crimea and uh, the acts in Ukraine in 2014. So when the prosecutor talks about possible war crimes and crimes against humanity, he's talking about what has happened back then and since then, and he's actually not talking about what's happening now. But once he is seized of a situation, so once an investigation is open, he is free to to investigate anything that's going on in that situation, so that includes current events. It takes years for these investigations? Is it because Mm -hmm. it's so difficult or because different countries are involved? 
That's a very good question. I mean, we alluded earlier to the kind of evidence that you need to go up the chain of command. The International Criminal Court in particular is charged with investigating and prosecuting those most responsible. So they will be looking to people at the top of the chain of command, like Putin himself and his close circle, perhaps generals and so on in the Russian military. It's a lot easier to prove a war crime by the person that actually launched the missile. Right. But building that chain of command up to the top can be complex. You know, it can need to rely on things like insider witnesses, intercepts and so on. So that can be one reason why it takes time. Quite frankly, another reason why it's taking so long at the International Criminal Court, and I think 10 years to decide on whether or not it looks like crimes were committed in 2014 is by anybody's uh, reckoning a very long time, is quite simply resources. So the International Criminal Court is examining situations all over the world. Um, it does not have extensive resources. In fact, I heard somebody who's aware of the team that's prosecuting and investigating the 2014 events in Ukraine say that the team had one Ukrainian speaker and one Russian speaker. So, you know, in order for the officer, of the prosecutor, who deals with crimes all over the world, to really accelerate investigations in this situation, which I think we all think would be a good thing, they're going to need a massive injection of resources. They're going to need to bring people on board. They need experienced people. They need people that speak the language. They need to be able to de divert resources from their other investigations to make this happen in a reasonable time frame. Where would they get that money? I mean, is there a process for them to get more funding? The usual uh, place they go to to get their money are the states who have signed up to the court. So there are 123 nations around the world that are part of the international criminal court system, so have ratified the treaty, and they are also then the supervisory body of the court, and they also provide funding for the court. Now, other states can also contribute. So the U.S., for example, could certainly contribute resources in order to accelerate that prosecution, even though the U.S. has not itself ratified the statute and isn't part of the court system. The U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, said that the United States is helping to pull evidence together, present it to international justice parties, mm -hmm. and then have a legal threshold that is met. What does the United States or what do individual countries have to do with this process? Or is it just, you know, the prosecutors from the ICC? Yeah, well, this is really an important way that states can assist, other than transferring funds directly and enabling the ICC to boost their, their team. Because states, of course, have, I referred earlier to intercept materials. So intercept materials have been very valuable for these international investigations and prosecutions. And that's the kind of material that states have. States are the bodies that are in a position to intercept communications and to understand what's going on. And if they are willing to share that information with the prosecutor's office, that can be a massive assistance. And the U.S. has been very helpful to international justice, actually, through providing uh, these kinds of information, perhaps as lead material rather than evidence through supporting, you know, sharing information that the U.S. has in its possession in the pursuit of international accountability for atrocity crimes. So that's absolutely a very helpful thing that the United States and other countries around the world could do. Do you know why the United States isn't a member of the ICC? Oh, well, that is a long and interesting story. So the United States was very supportive of the creation of the court, attended the Rome Conference in 1998, which drew up the statute, which was all the you know, nations of the world deciding what this court should have jurisdiction over and how it should work. The US was very active, had a big delegation, actually signed 
the statute, but never took it through the process of ratification. In other words, never went through Congress to actually turn it into uh, binding law in the US. And then George W. Bush withdrew from the statute in so far as that makes any sense when it hadn't actually adopted. So kind of unsigned it. And relations under Obama um, improved. I don't think there was an indication that the US was going to sign up, but there was certainly support for investigations. And then relations reached an all-time low under the last presidency. I don't know if you remember, but President Trump actually issued an executive order against the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court because of the investigation in Afghanistan, which had implications for U.S. military. So, um, you know, it's a good question. I think the hesitation, there's a hesitation over having any other body have sovereignty over or have jurisdiction and be able to judge the acts of of U.S. personnel, although, you know, I would say to that argument, uh, whenever anybody of any nationality commits a crime on a foreign territory, that territory has jurisdiction over those crimes. So it's not a massive step to transfer it to the International Criminal Court. Uh, I mean, let's see what position the current administration takes. I certainly think from what we've seen President Biden say recently, um, that there is a much more supportive attitude to the court, and whether that leads to the U.S. actually joining up, which I think would be a wonderful message to send about uh, no impunity for international crimes, uh, remains to be seen. The ICC doesn't conduct trials in absentia, so... Correct. Can they even get Putin? Putin would have to be handed over. How would it work? Yeah, he'd have to be handed over. So that's not looking very likely at the moment, mm. right? I mean, what we've seen with heads of state and international prosecutions is it tends to be once they've been ousted from power that they might be handed over by their own state who you know may want to move on and may disagree with the way they've behaved or the kind of situation that them being accused of these international crimes, the climate or the reputational damage that that's done to, to the nation. So we saw Slobodan Milosevic from Yugoslavia, for example, from Serbia, being handed over to the International Criminal Tribunal after he lost power as Serbia was trying to move forward and join the European Union and leave its war-trodden past behind it. So it's possible there could be a trajectory like that for Vladimir Putin. I mean, the other possibility is that any state would be able to arrest Vladimir Putin on the basis of charges against him for international crimes. So we could see his ability to travel around the world being somewhat limited. There's an analogy there with, I don't know if you remember the situation with President al-Bashir of Sudan, former president. He was also indicted in connection with atrocities in Darfur while he was in power. And he did travel outside Sudan, but very carefully and only to countries that he'd previously screened and checked were not going to arrest him before he got there. So that could be a kind of interim effect that we see of any possible charges against Vladimir Putin. Let me posit this, and you tell me if you agree Mm -hmm. or not. It seems highly unlikely that Vladimir Putin at this point, or even after the war is over, will be tried for war crimes. I think it's unlikely as long as he stays in power in Russia. However, if he is no longer in power or when he's no longer in power, I think it could become a real possibility. I want to switch to a different topic for a moment. Does the United States have any obligation to take in refugees, Ukrainian refugees specifically? 
Well, there is a general obligation, uh, and this is under a combination of laws. So under refugee law, under human rights law, there is a general obligation not to send somebody back to a situation in which they fear for their life. Now, what does that mean about people who are not yet here is an unclear point of law, to be frank. So uh, many people, including the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, would say, well, that provision is meaningless if you don't let people in in the first place right because that's effectively sending them back if they have no if they can't escape the country however others the kind of more hard line might say well if they're not on our territory they're not our problem so legally you know there's some dispute what's absolutely clear is people cannot be sent back to a situation where they are fearing for their lives so whether that means that the US is obliged to take them as i said legally is kind of a point of contention so i guess that that's why Ukrainian refugees are showing up at the southern border rather than trying to get in? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it would be very important for the refugees to just try and land on U.S. soil. And then at that point, the U.S. really is under an obligation not to send them back. Then The U.S. is not under an obligation to grant them you know, permanent status, but it would be under an obligation on humanitarian grounds, legally, to make sure that they are not sent back to Ukraine. Thanks for being on the show, Kate. That's Kate McIntosh, the executive director of the Promise Institute at UCLA Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The historic nomination of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. If confirmed, she'll be the first black woman to sit on our country's highest court. At the end of day one of her confirmation hearings, she made a promise to be a fair and neutral arbiter of justice. I decide cases from a neutral posture. I evaluate the, the facts and I interpret 
and apply the law to the facts of the case before me without fear or favor, consistent with my judicial oath. My guest is John Michaels, a professor at UCLA Law School. During the opening statements, a lot of the Republican senators referred back to the Kavanaugh hearings, but not to the latest set of hearings, which was the Amy Coney Barrett hearings. Do you think that there's some leftover hostility from Kavanaugh that might bleed further into these hearings? Well, uh, it's not clear it's, it's hostility as much as it's an opportunity to uh, relitigate past grievances. And I say that because I'm not sure how sincere these, these efforts are. They're certainly um, uh, powerful and destructive, but I'm not sure how, how credible or sincere they are. There is a benefit for going back, as it were, and, and muddying the playing field as much as possible. And frankly, it needs to be done in, in this context, if only because Judge Jackson's record is practically spotless. So there has to be some kind of invitation for chaos in order to create the obstruction or, or confusion or, let's say, um, to raise questions about a candidacy that is otherwise a real no-brainer. At what point did confirmation hearings turn into such a partisan, totally partisan affair where you have some senators who voted for her to become a judge on the D.C. Circuit now saying they may not vote for her to be on the Supreme Court? Yeah, so there's a, <laughs> like everything else uh, in this kind of political moment, there's a, a, a bit of a partisan debate about when this all started. Uh, a lot of Republicans will focus on the Robert Bork hearing. But a lot of other people will say, let's take a step back and realize that the first uh, occasion for really uh, subjecting the Supreme Court nominate, uh, nominees to the type of uh, aggressive scrutiny really started when the, the old boys club started to get shaken up. And originally, the old boys club was being shaken up only by folks who were white ethnics or more progressive and less within the kind of clubby world of Wall Street. So we're talking about the, early, the kind of New Deal appointments. And, of course, even um, John Marshall Harlan II, who was of the kind of elite New York bar, was scrutinized um, uh, aggressively because the conservatives were worried about where he'd come down on segregation issues and, and desegregation issues. So it, one could focus on the Bork hearings as this kind of cultural touchstone, but there were events that led up to it that define largely, I guess, a, a modern era of greater kind of care and scrutiny as the Supreme Court has taken a, a larger and larger role in the, the regulation of our most important institutions and life choices. So Senator Lindsey Graham was complaining that Biden didn't choose Judge Michelle Childs and said he was going to investigate with Judge Jackson the dark money behind her confirmation process. Now, that seems totally inappropriate, and I'm sure she's going to say, what does she know about it? Although in a nicer way than that. I think that would be the, the most candid answer. Um, but of course, it still, <laughs> it still allows Lindsey Graham to leave out there unaddressed the question about whether that's actually at all a credible claim that has any validity to it. Just because Judge Jackson can't confirm or deny it 
doesn't mean it's actually what's been going on in a case like this. So Lindsey Graham is pulling out his old lawyerly tricks in doing so and, and, and doing so in a form where it can't be credibly rebutted, unless a Democratic senator is going to use um, his or her time to do so. And that's what it ends up being often, isn't it? It seems like it's more about the questions than it is about the answers. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's fair. And it, um, it also then further raises the question about how, how probative these hearings ever are. Because the senators are either talking to the cameras or talking to their Twitter followers or they're trying to kind of reframe the the questions or debates in in ways that are advancing various partisan interests. And unfortunately, in many cases, we don't actually learn that much more about the nominee and the nominee has to sit there often stone faced and just watch the partisan circus kind of march past them, as it were. Today, Senator Ted Cruz said he was going to ask her about free speech, religious liberty, gun rights, abortion, and crime. Does he expect an answer to any of those questions? Because most nominees have not answered those questions except to say, I'll follow precedent. I wouldn't expect Judge Jackson to to weigh in on any of those issues. It, It seems unhelpful in the moment. It could be used down the road were she to be confirmed to suggest that she's maybe prejudged the case. So there are political reasons and then there are professional prudential reasons for treading really carefully there. You know, in a different world, under different circumstances, we could actually learn a lot. If this were truly an inquiry to find out and learn a little bit more about a particular candidate. It's less important in this particular moment, not just because what then Judge Gorsuch did or then Judge Ruth Ginsburg did, which obviously gives Judge Jackson cover to do the same things, but also because, you know, let's remember that she's one of the more experienced nominees that we've had. She's been a district court judge for many years and then more recently an appellate level judge. She served on the United States Sentencing Commission. I mean, she has a long and a well understood track record. So it's not as if she's come out of nowhere and we need to learn about this candidate who no one's ever encountered before. The Republicans seem to be ready to attack her as being soft on crime. We heard this from Mitch McConnell last week, and, you know, we're hearing it again in the Republicans' opening statements. There are some scurrilous attacks that have been raised against her that have framed her as being sympathetic or enabling of pedophilia or being soft on terrorism. Those are claims that are incredibly biting when they turn into sound bites, but have very little context or, again, substantiation behind them. So I find it deeply troubling the way in which it's been kind of marshaled or weaponized in this fashion. I will say this, that the fact that Judge Jackson served as a federal public defender should be considered as a real virtue for a court that hasn't had someone who has that professional experience, that life experience, in quite a long time, in decades, in fact. So the idea that the court should have a breadth of legal and professional experience that informs their work strikes me as an unalloyed good. Um, And the notion of something being soft or hard when it uh, on on crime uh, without context is really just, again, an attempt to undermine her, her credibility and suggest that she's somehow not a responsible member of the legal community, which again has no substantiation. Last week, Senator Josh Hawley started tweeting about 
Jackson consistently sentencing child porn possession and distribution defendants to prison terms well below federal sentencing guidelines. And it seems true that she did sentence several to the minimum and some to the below the minimum, but put that in context. Yeah, so again, this is trying to tap into QAnon conspiracy theories about the Democratic Party embracing or enabling pedophilia. It's taken woefully out of context. Supreme Court justices of the right have also challenged and struck down laws that were intended to be tough on sex offenders, because sometimes one has to think about the law outside of the commission of a particular crime. And conservative justices have done that in the not-so-distant past. And I don't recall, though I could be wrong, Josh Hawley taking to the public airwaves to decry when his fellow travelers have have made similar moves. So they're bound to ask her about her decision on Don McGahn. How defensible is her opinion in that case? Sometimes it might be hard for a judge to explain one's ruling in this type of format, not because they're in any way doubtful about how they came out in the matter, but because it'll open them up to criticism that they're speculating or going beyond the record. My understanding of how best to proceed under those circumstances would simply say that, you know, I refer you back to my opinion, which was comprehensive and explained the the basis for my decision and the reasoning underlying it. And I think one of the benefits we have about a, a judiciary that puts basically almost all of its work in writing and, and individuals sign their names to it is that it becomes a kind of a complete record of the matter. And so to get pulled into a conversation about presidential power writ large or about questions about corruption or transparency strikes me as ill-advised. Is it likely that she'd answer the question that Republicans intend to ask her about whether she favors packing the court? No, I don't think (laughs) she should. There's no basis for, for doing that. And if the, you know, that's a question for Congress, of course. And I mean, in some ways she... She might. It might just be an opportunity for her to say, um, that's a matter for you all to decide. She's been before this committee three times before, and she's described it as extremely nerve-wracking and that she took up knitting to sort of help her with her nerves. How do they prep for these? Is it like prepping for oral arguments where all kinds of questions are thrown at you and you figure out which answers work best? It's a pretty well-orchestrated operation where they are kind of sherpered through the system by members of the White House, by uh, presumably some friendly voices on the Senate Judiciary Committee side as well. It's it's a very labor-intensive process. I will say that one thing that can't be taught, and that at least my sense of Judge Jackson, how she's presenting it today at least, is that you can't teach someone to have a judicial temperament. You either have it or you don't. And at least at the early stages, Judge Jackson is evidencing a judicial temperament. And by that, I mean a cool and calm demeanor and a sense of not easily ruffled. And we haven't seen that uniformly from nominees before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And again, we can refer back to Justice Kavanaugh, uh, then Judge Kavanaugh, losing his cool and, and raising his voice to senators. And notwithstanding all that, he was obviously confirmed. During Judge Jackson's hearings for the D.C. Circuit, Republican Senator John Cornyn asked her what role race plays in the kind of judge you've been. Is that an appropriate question? Do we think we'll hear that at these hearings? I'm sure we'll hear versions of that. You know, whether it's a fair question, I mean, you know, in some ways it's an opportunity. 
Um, the real question is, would he ask those questions of white candidates? Would he ask what role does gender play? Would he ask that of a male candidate? If we had a, a, a candidate that identified as LGBTQ, would he ask a similar question uh, about uh, either gender identity or sexual orientation when it comes to a, a straight male? Um, so one, one has to be on guard that there's additional burdens that are being imposed on our uh, public officials of color or public uh, officials who are not of the distinct, you know, ruling majority, and whether it's fair and credible to ask them those questions. Are you fairly confident that unless something unexpected happens, she'll be confirmed? I would like to say I'm pretty confident because I'm enthusiastic about her candidacy, but I think I've measured in my optimism only because we have a long process to go. And it seems like there is not a lot of bipartisan support, that there's a lot of extra votes lying around for Judge Jackson to pick up. And this may turn into a 50-50 vote where the vice president has to break the tie. And so it's hard to tell at this point. Republicans don't seem particularly enthusiastic, notwithstanding that many of them have voted to confirm her for other positions of incredible influence and trust. Thanks, John. That's John Michaels of UCLA Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.